I'm back. I'm feeling good. Thank you. Thank you for your prayers. Yep. And a huge thanks to Jim Labot. If he's in here, thank you. There you are, buddy. Wow. Well done. Yeah, give, give it up for him too. Uh, it's, it's that time of season. Apparently, I haven't had the flu in 15 years, and so what a, what a way to go out. But I'm feeling good, and I'm glad to be back. Um, I just wanted to share one thing that we're adding to our worship service this morning, and I want you guys to ha- kind of have it in your head, in your heart, when you see it next week. We're going to be doing prayer cards out at the, at the front at the Welcome Center and at the usher's a little desk here where I would, we're giving you the opportunity to write out a prayer request that we will incorporate into our worship service. And we want to incorporate prayer, always more and more prayer into our services. But as we worship, it is so appropriate and so biblical that we be praying for things that are going on around us. And so a um, couple things that you should know about that. The card is there. You do not have to put your name on your prayer request. You can if you want, but it can be totally anonymous if you want it to be. Um, it can be specific to what's going on. It can be general. If you're, if you're struggling with a relationship, you can put that on there, or you can just ask for prayer for marriages across the church and across the area. Um, and then at the, during the service, we're going to grab a couple of those cards, and during the worship, we are going to pray for those, those items as a way that we can continue to worship and honor God for what He's doing. Um, and it's another great opportunity also to thank God for the things that He's doing in our lives, and, and what a great environment to do that in. So look for those cards next week. If you feel led, put a request down on it. You can put your information on it if you want, or you don't have to, and then we'll pray for a couple of those things during the service. So I hope you got that. Grab me after the service if you have any questions, or grab Nate and Jules because it's their really cool idea. So, um, But um, I'm excited because I have like all this built to last sermon series pent up inside of me, and it's got to come out. So now I get to preach the sermon that I was going to preach last week. I get to preach it this morning, and I'm excited about it. Um, The the, the built to last series is is built on Jesus' words. If you remember, um, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching his his, his disciples and anyone who will listen up on the mountaintop. And um, he says this, um, if I can find it. Um, let's see here. He says this in, in chapter 7, and right at the end of his sermon, he tells his disciples and, and then subsequently us, he says this in verse 24, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house Yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. So Jesus is giving us an idea. And he's saying, listen, if you practice what I'm telling you, not if, but when the storms come, you will have built something that is built on me and it will last. And so when we were thinking about this series, we thought, let's talk about what that looks like. Let's talk about what intentional, careful construction looks like so that we can build something that will outlast us. And that's the goal this morning. And, and, and every morning that we're talking about this is that we can build things, we can build a life that will outlast us. And so we can add to the kingdom and God's will will be done through our lives. 
You know, um, I, I've said this a few times in this series, but I have construction experience in my past. Uh, back uh, a few years ago, my brother and my father and I all own, co-owned a construction company together, and we, we did all kinds of work. Primarily, we did new construction. We framed homes. We did uh, remodels, and, and uh, we finished out basements and all this kind of stuff. But when work was slow, we took work from another company that never seemed to have slow periods. It was a, um, a, a, a refurbishing company. It was a company that insurance company would pay money to this company and then they would go into like fire damage or flood damage or, or, or wind or hail or any kind of damage and, and they would essentially refurbish whatever the, the project was. And so I can remember basements that were flooded six foot deep of water and me and my crew would go in after the flood and we would tear out the carpet and tear out the drywall and put everything new. We would make things right. I think even the slogan of the company was make it look like it never happened, right? Like, let's just forget that thing. But I'll never forget this one project that we had. Times were slow. We didn't have any houses lined up to, to frame out. So, so this company said, hey, we have a fire damage um, claim that you could come and you could uh, work on. And we said, that's great. So I showed up early in the morning, and it was a couple who had had a, a, a kitchen fire in their kitchen. The problem was is they weren't there when they had it, so it actually burned for a while. And they had to get a whole new kitchen, new cabinets, and, and everything. And subsequently, the, the living room was covered in black soot and smoke from where the fire had gone in. And our job was to remove the black soot. And I can remember standing there. It was this beautiful living room, these huge arch ceilings. And it had like open beams and like this wood, like tongue and groove, like cedar shakes on the roof. It was beautiful. Of course, it was covered in soot. And I remember looking at that going, how in the world are we going to get that stuff off? And I, and I looked to the owner and I said, are you sure you don't just want us to replace that? And he said, no, 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 I don't want you to replace it. It's so beautiful. I, I just want you to go up there and remove the soot. So I hung my head and I said, oh, well, okay. <laughs> uh, and, we, and we got our... our um, we had a platform with wheels on it. We had a couple of guys on it. And we quickly learned that you can't use um, heavy uh, equipment on this type of job. You can't use belt sandals or palm sanders or anything like that. You have to do it, that's right, by hand. So we got out our scrapers and our sanding blocks and sandpaper, and we got to work. And I have never felt that kind of pain in my arms and shoulders before, working over my head, just scraping and scraping and scraping. But as we began to make progress across this giant living room, I began to realize why the owner wanted me to remove the soot as opposed to replace it. You see, it was beautiful. And it meant something to this owner. He didn't want something new. He wanted what, what, what was. And, and as we began to remove it, I saw the beauty of it. And I went, no, I agree. We got to remove this. It took us, I think, three times that we thought it would take us to do it. It was an incredibly long and difficult job. But when we were done, we sanded that fresh wood, and it looked gorgeous. This morning, we get to talk about reconciliation, which is a difficult topic to speak on, just in case you're wondering. You guys should be praying for me. Reconciliation is hard, and reconciliation is like a fire happening in your house. It's, it's brutal, it's difficult. Conflict creates this fire. And the, and, the, and the reconciliation is the hard work of making it go back to normal. 
And it can feel like hand sanding a ceiling with all the soot and the grime and the smoke damage that comes with that. Everybody has conflict in their life. Some people have conflict, the kind of conflict that's a really bright burning fire, and some, some people have conflict that just smolders over time. But everybody has conflict. So what do we do about it? What do we do about this? You know, statistically, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but statistically, Christians and non-Christians handle conflict about the same. There's not really a statistical difference. And if you, if you wonder about this, if it's hard for you to believe, check out the Barna Group. Um, Christianity Today actually did a story a few years back on the comparison of Christian and secular families and lives and what those two differences look like. And, and there were differences, but just not large differences. But dream with me just for a moment. What if Grace Chapel was the kind of place that put a priority on reconciliation? Let no conflict go without the hard work of reconciliation. Our shoulders are going to hurt. Our arms are going to be sore. But I promise you, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing when two friends that have been at odds finally come back together and reconcile? What if Grace Chapel was the kind of place that put a huge priority on that? Think about a church that loves so deeply that they would not rest until every attempt had been made to reconcile to the one that had been offended. What if we were the church that held reconciliation up as the goal? The truth is, Christianity, the Christian culture, needs to get a whole lot better at making up. We need to get better at reconciliation. And so, with that in mind, Jesus' words this morning are really encouraging. And he knows that people are at odds. In fact, Jesus had a zealot on his team, and he had a tax collector on his team. You don't think those two people were constantly trying to kill each other? It happened. Conflict happens. And this is Jesus' instructions on how to deal with it. Matthew chapter 5, 21 through 26 is going to be our section this morning. And listen to what Jesus has to say. The section's entitled Murder, which is quite ominous, I think. This is what he says in verse 21. You have heard that said that people long ago, you shall not commit, a, commit murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. The disciples are like, ah, yes, yes, learned this since I was a boy. Murder's a bad thing. <laughs> and if you do it, you will be subject to judgment of the local magistrates. And they had courts in every area, usually connected with their temple. And wise men would, would make judgment calls based on a crime that was murder. And it all made sense. So just don't murder, and you should be okay. And that's what the law states. Don't commit murder, and if you do, you'll be subject to judgment. That's very logical. Most societies have that law. And then Jesus goes and does what Jesus does in verse 22. But I tell you, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. 
And, and I can imagine the disciples, it, it probably takes them a few minutes to let that sink in, and then they went, angry? You mean, you mean like I was angry at Peter for, for walking too fast on the hike up here? You mean just, just any kind of anger? What do you mean, Jesus? Things, things get a little interesting now. Again, Jesus says, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Okay. Now hang on a second. What in the world does he mean? Because me and my brother have spent the majority of our life being mad at each other. And, and, and we go through periods of like making up, yeah, everything's fine, and then we get mad at each other. This is, this is, this is called high school, right? <laughs> this is my life. How in the world am I supposed to not be angry? And, and, and the consequence is hell? What is he saying here? And Jesus says, anyone who is angry will be subject to judgment. Suddenly, Jesus flips the murder clause on its head. And he's saying, you know where murder comes from? Murder comes from your heart. And so Jesus is saying, God is going to look through your actions to where that started from. Where did that murder come from? It started in your heart with anger. And anger burns and burns and burns until it causes so much damage that you can't see the beautiful open beams and the, sheet and the cedar lattice work and all that is there. It's just black soot. Anger begets anger, which begets murder. You know, courts use um, to judge the action. And Jesus is going, actually, there's something deeper going on. God actually judges your heart. You can, you can tell the court that you're not angry, and they'll judge you based on your actions, but you can't hide the fire that's burning in your living room. You can't hide that from God. And there's this escalation of courts here. There's the, there's the court of the, of the general magistrate, and, and they would try local crimes, and if you did something really, really bad, you would have to go to the higher court. We have this in our country, right? Their court was called the Sanhedrin, and if you really messed up, you would go to the Sanhedrin, which was 72 elders that met in Jerusalem, and they would decide what would happen to you. That's only significant crimes. And then the highest court, the court of all courts, the heavenly court, would decide what would happen to you. It's a scary thought. But it's nothing new. Jesus isn't saying, hey, this used to happen and now this is, new thing is going to happen. This has always been going on. God has always seen what's in your heart. Jesus is saying, now you're answerable to what's going on in your heart. It's interesting, the, the analogy or the, the, the example he says here, again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the court. That's an Aramaic word that just means jerk or something like that, something base and, and, and aggressive. 
And it's this, this heart attitude that has been burning for a while to the point that it comes out of your mouth. And that's the conflict. That's what starts the fire in the house. And he goes on and says, anyone who says, you fool, will be in the fire of, the, of hell. And it's a little confusing here, and there's a big debate over what that word hell means. Because the word hell in the Greek is Gehenna. And Gehenna is this place that they used to throw their trash, and they would burn their trash outside of the city. So some people say, listen, Jesus isn't saying you're going to go to hell if you, call, if you say you fool to your brother. What he's saying is you're going to be, it's going to be a waste if you do that, okay? And the other camp is going, no, no, this is a real serious thing. You, you're going to burn in eternal separation from God if you have anger in your heart. But this is what I say. I say in this context it doesn't matter. Because Jesus is saying something that is way bigger than what we think. Jesus is prioritizing reconciliation of conflict. And he's, and he's throwing it way high on the priority scale. And he's going, this guys, this is, this is way more important than you have ever thought it was. Anyone who says you fool will be in the danger of the fire of hell. That's serious. And you can see the eyes of the disciples just bugging out and how are we going to live this way? I mean, everyone from different times has anger in their heart. Is this Jesus? Are you being serious? Or is this one of those things where like, well, we can't really live like that, so what are we going to do? Oh no, we'll just try to do better tomorrow. <laughs> What's the point? And it's almost like Jesus sees the look on their face and he gives them two examples. He says, therefore, in verse 23, therefore, here's an here's a everyday example for you. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, them Come and offer your gift. It says two very significant aspects to this example. If you know anything about the temple in Jerusalem, where you would offer a sacrifice for worship, whether it was a sin offering, you were asking for forgiveness, or whether it was a worship offering, you were just worshiping God. If you know anything about offering and, and what it takes to make a sacrifice, it's not a quick process. It's not like putting your pin in the ATM and out comes cash. It's a long process. And if you've ever sat in a line at Disney World, you know the longer the ride, the longer it takes to get to the ride. Am I right? If a ride takes 10 minutes to, 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 live, to, to ride on, that line is going to be days long. <laughs> well, this was a ride that took a long time. Very specific things had to happen in order for you to offer a sacrifice in worship. So you can imagine the line. The line would, would come out of the court of, uh, and, and, and into the court of the Gentiles and out past the court of the Gentiles and then out of the temple. And, and, and sometimes if you were there at a festival, forget about it. It's going to be a day and a half process just to get to the altar. You've waited and you've waited and you've waited and it's taking 
forever. And that the, the people in front of you have to be the biggest sinners in the world because they're offering sacrifice after sacrifice. And you're, come on, I got, hang, I got hungry kids. I got a tired wife. I got a donkey. I don't know if he's going to make it. You know, he hasn't had like hay in like two days. And I got to wait and wait and wait. And Jesus goes, you know how you're waiting in front, you know, to, 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 do, to do the sacrifice, to make a worship sacrifice? Well, listen to this. God says that it's more important for you to reconcile than that sacrifice. He's not saying God doesn't like sacrifice. He's saying he likes reconciliation a whole lot more. So it would be better for you to leave that right when you're about to do it. Leave it at the altar. Go find your brother. That means something to these people physically. It means something. But there's a spiritual element to this too. And it's, and it's this idea that, that God wants us to worship honestly, transparently, in truth. And if we got this thing nagging at us in the back of our mind, your brother's really mad at you. Whether he's justified or not, he's mad at you. And there's conflict in your life. God is saying, you know what? It would be better for you to go deal with that and then approach me. This is, this is crazy. The most important thing in these people's lives were, were the offering, were the sacrifices, were the festivals. And they would go into the temple and they would do this. And this was the epicenter of their relationship with their father. And Jesus is saying it's better that you would go fix something than to do that with that kind of attitude. That's heavy. The interesting thing about this example, too, is that it's not necessarily the person's fault. Did you catch the way he said that? Therefore, if, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, kind of sounds like it's their problem, right? In our culture, in our day and age, it's almost like you get to gloat if somebody's mad at you. <laughs> it's like, well, I would hate to be that guy because he's mad at me. Woo! It's almost like a joke. But Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter if he's justified in his anger. It doesn't matter if you've done something right or wrong. It doesn't matter if he saw something and made a judgment call. Maybe he misunderstood your words or maybe he thought you said something behind your back when you didn't. He's got a problem with you. You see how Jesus doesn't focus in on the sin or the offense. He's focused on the conflict. He's saying, you got conflict. You got to go figure it out. He doesn't say, run to your brother and apologize for everything you've ever done to him. But he does say, go and make it right. That's a big priority he's putting on this. That's the first example. And the second example is this in 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are on the way. Still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and, the, and then you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. It is a wise thing to learn how to be good at reconciliation. Sometimes you've got to scrub the ceiling and it's painful and frustrating and it doesn't happen overnight and you go to your brother and you go, man, i got to make this right with you. I'm so sorry. And he goes, yeah, you do. And that takes months, if not years. Reconciliation is hard work. In the second example, Jesus is saying, 
when, when it's kind of your fault. The implication of the, of the example is that if somebody's going to take you to court and, and you're going to be handed over to an officer and you're going to go to jail, it's an assumption that you've done something wrong. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, listen, if, if you're good at this and you're, you eagerly uh, meet conflict and you say, listen, I don't want to have conflict, let's settle this outside of court. I don't want to go to court. I want to make it right to you right now. Jesus is saying, that's wise. Be good at making up. That's a wise way to build your house. First example, it's not my fault. Second example, it is my fault. Either one, Jesus places unprecedented priority on reconciliation. Never had they heard this before. Reconciliation is more important than offering and worship. Wow. Reconciliation is more important than who is right and who is wrong. That's hard to swallow. I'm a red-blooded American. I live for being right. Right? That's what Facebook is built on. Facebook is built on being right. And I could just hit a button and then nobody could say anything, right? Right? not a priority for Jesus. Who's right, who's wrong? I hope the message is clear for us. And I know scrubbing that ceiling is a lot of work. It's not so much the hard work that intimidates me, it's the awkward feelings. Like when I don't know how somebody feels towards me, like I go to my brother and I go, I'm really, really sorry if you were offended by that, I didn't mean it, or, or, or whatever the situation, and, and, and they go, yeah, yeah, sir, whatever, dude. And I don't really know, and it's like, okay, I guess I'm gonna have to come back later and, and make sure they're okay, and I, I mean, it's, it's just constant tending of like, are we okay, are you okay? I, I really wanna make sure it's a priority to Jesus, it's a priority to me, I wanna make sure that we're reconciled. And the relationship changes a little bit, and you kinda of have to find your own way again. Oh, that's the worst. I thought I did awkward well, but I don't. Reconciliation is a priority. And I can, remember, I can imagine the disciples kind of squirming in their seats going, well, how? How do you do that? How do you make reconciliation a priority in your life? Jesus, a few chapters later, comments on this. Matthew 18. And he gives us really clear-cut instructions on how to reconcile. <laughs> you don't have to send him a Facebook message. You don't have to... There's no ambiguity in Jesus' instructions. This is Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Jesus says this, if your brother or sister sins, that implies whether it's against you or against them or against God or against their wife or against their kids. If you see a brother or sister sin, if you see them sin, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. We can just stop right there. Because we don't even do that well in our, in our culture, right? 
Go to your brother when you see something and you point it out to them and you do it in a way that says, you know, I know the cancer that's growing in you and it's the same cancer that grows in me and I know that I've been down that path or maybe not that path but a path just like it and I know what it did to my heart and I know what it did to my wife and I know what it did to my neighbors and my, my kids and brother, I love you too much for that. I love you too much to let you walk deeper and deeper and deeper into this thing. And you tell them, you say, listen, I'll help you. I'll work with you. I'll walk with you out of this thing. But you gotta know that sin and sin tears you apart. Jesus says, go to them. And you notice he emphasizes one little part of that. Just between two of you. I can imagine the, the analogy that Jesus gave earlier when, when you, you, know, you're, you, get your, you got your offering right at the, the altar and you're about to offer it and then you go, oh, my brother's got something against me. And so you go to your brother and then you tell everybody that you're going to your brother and you make sure to add what your brother did and how crazy he is for thinking this, but oh, I gotta go make it right. And you like collect an army of people behind you that are all like, yeah, Josh is right. Your brother's crazy. That's not the instruction. You don't build, you don't go seek people that will agree with you and then go to your brother with ammunition about why they're wrong. You go to your brother or sister privately. The privateness of this is because you love them. The privateness of this is because you honor them and you're lifting them up and you're saying, I'm not talking about this to anybody whether it's against me, against him, against her, or it's against God. I'm not talking about this. I want you to know, because that's how much I love you. Oh, that reconciliation is hard to resist. I've had a few people do that to me, and it takes me about three seconds, and I'm a puddle on the floor. I, 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 I just want to wrap my arms around him and say, thank you for honoring me. I screwed up. I made a mistake. But thank you for bringing it to me. Unfortunately, that doesn't work all the time. Fortunately, we get stuck. Sin confuses us and it makes us feel like we're right. So Jesus says, if they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that they may, the matter may be established by a testimony of two or three witnesses. And you gotta bring poor people in. And I think Jesus would agree, you don't tell anybody else, you tell them. You bring it to them and say, listen, we gotta, we gotta care for our brother here. He's hurting. And if they still refuse to listen, you take it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, you treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And who did Jesus hang out with the most? No. You love them. You love them like someone who doesn't know the gospel. You love them like someone who is confused and is in desperate need of the truth. That's reconciliation. That's what it looks like. This is a true statement. Being people known for reconciliation makes our house stronger. Jesus says, put my words into practice. 
and you'll be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. Yeah, but there's so much soot on the ceiling. It's so difficult. Yeah, wise men work hard. Being people known for reconciliation makes our house stronger. So the question is, are you willing to pick up the phone? Are you willing to have an awkward conversation with your coworker just to make sure there isn't a chance you can reconcile and make it right? Maybe you can't. Maybe you can't pick up the phone. It's too much. It's too much pain. They've hurt you too deeply. Can you write them an email? Can you send them a text message? Write them a handwritten letter. Make the attempt to reconcile. Because Jesus prioritizes it. And he says it's a really big deal. What if we were a church that prioritized reconciliation? What if we were a church that didn't mind scrubbing the ceiling over and over and over to let that beautiful woodwork shine? What if we were a church that our neighbors in this community knew us to be a church that didn't have all the answers, that were humble, and when there was something wrong, we wanted to fix it? I think that's the kind of church God wants us to be. And I think if we are that kind of church, we are putting Jesus' words into practice. And I think our house gets stronger. Paul writes in Romans 12, 18, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Let's be people of peace. Let's be people of reconciliation. Emphasis isn't on who's right. The emphasis isn't even on apologizing. Did you catch that? Jesus isn't saying you've got to run to him and say, okay, whatever happened, I don't even know what happened, but I'm sorry because obviously it's my fault. That's not true reconciliation. You've got to get to the truth and the bottom of it. And you've got to do it with your arm around your brother. The emphasis is on reconciliation. Being people known for reconciliation makes our house stronger. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is a hard task. And this is a hard word to swallow. But God, we want to be people of reconciliation. If it's a priority to you, we want to make it a priority for us. God, I ask that that maybe we could look at reconciliation as an act of worship to you. As painful as it is, Lord, bring the people up in our minds that we're struggling with. Maybe the first step is just praying for them. Lord, I ask that you would move us to do that. God, help us to be a church that reconciles. Help us to be a church that is not afraid of the hard work. Because we want to reflect you. We want your will to be done here. We want to build this house to last. God, lead us in this. Forgive us when we trip. Give us 
grace and patience when our brothers and sisters come to us and point out a fault. Give us grace and patience with each other, Lord. Help us build this house to last. In your name, amen.